This podcast contains details about sexual abuse and murder. Listener discretion is advised. In future episodes, we'll be discussing the case, as well as breaking down events that led up to the murders and deconstructing the aftermath that led to Heath's life without parole sentence. So we are at January 17th, 1997, which is the night of the Stocks family murders. On this night, two 911 calls come in. Both of them are hang-ups. The calls are traced back to the Stocks residence on Johnson Road in Lone Oak, Arkansas. Officer Kalisa is dispatched to the scene where he arrives at 10.56 p.m. Upon arrival, the officer is greeted by two dogs. Kalisa quickly did a status check with a 911 dispatcher at 10.56 p.m. and advised dispatcher Engel that he was attempting to gain access to the residence by getting past a large Rottweiler. The officer honks at first to see if he can get the attention of anyone in the house. When he received no response, he approached the house. He noticed the door is slightly open, so he pushes it some more and shouts, Sheriff's Office. At 10.58 p.m., Kalisa requested a 10.19 for backup to Sergeant White because the door was open and the house appeared to have been ransacked. He immediately discovers three bodies on the floor with large pools of blood near each of their heads. At 10.59 p.m., Kalisa advised the dispatcher to go to Channel 93, which was a radio channel that's not frequently used and can be easily accessed by area law enforcement. Kalisa advised the sheriff's dispatcher, 3107s, which was code for dead bodies, inside the residence. He exits the house and calls for backup. At 11.04 p.m., Sheriff Martin receives that 10.7 call. The bodies are discovered to be Barbara, Joe, and Heather Stocks, three out of four members of the Stocks family. Sheriff Martin and his team arrive on the scene. Sergeant White advises the dispatcher that an ambulance is not needed. The search is on for the missing family member, 20-year-old Heath Stocks. They found Heath at an apartment near the college he had previously attended, Henderson State University. Initially, Heath was looking for his former roommate, Keith Anthony, who happened to be staying elsewhere that weekend. We had the opportunity to sit down with Keith and talk to him about what he remembered from that time. Here's what he had to say. It happened on a Friday night, and I went home, I think Thursday night, me and him, we had it, we set the house, because he was, he was, he just was to move out. He had, he quit college. And he was moving out. I had another guy moving with me. Uh, my new roommate was there when it, when the night happened. Um, um, but no, we 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 had a good time up right till, you know, never even an inkling of of anything. And I went back home that Friday night, and we had the old Prime Star stuff, where we didn't have local local news. Our news came from California and places like that back. We didn't have, I lived at Forest Battle Sticks that we didn't have cable, so we had our, we didn't have local news. And so when I got back Sunday, I went to my room and hit my answer machine, and it was 33 messages. Keith, what's going on? Keith, man, what's going on? I mean, from everybody, what, what, what happened? What's going on? What, what, what's going on? I had no idea. 
So Kelly, his girlfriend, lived next next door to me. I went over and said, what's going on? I'm like, you get hurt? I said, hurt what? Well, he killed his family, and I hit the floor. I, mean, I literally just fell down in, in the doorway like, do what? I mean, and that's, that's how I found out. I mean, I had no idea it happened until I got back to college on Sunday. Wow. It was, it blew my mind, like, no way. Uh, and I mean, of course, back then, we didn't have cell phones, nothing like that. And so, uh, you know, I didn't, nobody called me, nobody, and uh, I just, uh, it just, it just, it blew my mind. I had, um, when I found out that, that he was there at our place, where they found him at, he went, came to my house first and my room and knocked on the door and asked my new roommate, hey, is Keith here? And I was like, no, he, he went home. He said, okay. And so he went next door to stay night at Kelly's. And that's where they found him at, in Kelly's room uh, next door to us. Um, my new roommate said, um, he opened the door, he had knocked on the door next morning, opened it, there's four cop cars, cops with the guns pulled, well, where's Heath and where's Keith? So they were looking for both of us. Oh, wow. And he's like, Keith's not here, and Heath was here. When they found that out, they stuck him in one room, his girlfriend in the next room, and separated them. And then they went next door and found Heath in, in Kelly's apartment next next door to us. Um, but yeah, that's always kind of wondering why he came looking. He came back and knocked on the door and said, yeah, hey, where's Keith at? So I didn't know if that was looking for me for, for what. You know, I never, I've never asked that question to him. You know, why why'd you, you know, did you come back to, to me to talk to you? Or 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 why why did you come back? Kelly Cunningham, his former college girlfriend, and also the person he stayed the night with on the night of the murders, agreed to talk to us. There are several other witnesses that interacted with Heath once he was at the apartments. Their statements all align with Kelly's. I don't remember what time it was. He just showed up, knocked on the door, and um, he was sick to his stomach. And I remember it being really, you know, kind of late. But I left and went to um, Piggly Wiggly, which was the local grocery store, to get him some, I think I got him some Pepto because his stomach was upset. He did vomit once at least. Um, but I just thought he had a bug or something, you know. And we went to sleep after that, only to be woke up by the, you know, the beating on the door. The police officers knocked on on Heath's apartment door, what used to be his apartment door where his roommate still lived. And they knocked so loud that I thought it was somebody knocking on my door. So I got up and opened the door and they told me to go back to bed. So I went back to bed. Um, but then they call. I think they called and asked me, was he with me? And I said, yeah, he's asleep right beside me. I wished I had the time to talk to him about it. But no, they took him and it was a Saturday, I believe. And, you know, I was like, you know, I need to know more what's going on. And, you know, on the, on the weekend, the news is very short. And it was just like a shock that they could think that he did that. <laughs> and so, you know, I just had to just go with by what they said. And, and it was just, it hurt. I mean, it hurt that 
They were taking him away, and I couldn't see him anymore. According to FOIA documents from the Arkansas State Police, here is Heath's initial statement. He was with his girlfriend, Jan, in Arkadelphia until about 3 p.m. on January 17th. He arrived at his house around 4.30 p.m. and found a note from his mom, letting him know that his grandparents wanted him to go out to eat with them and some other relatives. Heath leaves his house and arrives at his grandparents' house around 5.30 p.m. They all ride together to the restaurant Western Sizzlin, and they were there until about 7.45 p.m. They leave the restaurant and go to Walmart. From Walmart, they go back to his grandparents' house. Heath says he was at their house for around 10 minutes before leaving to go to the Edge Club in Little Rock, Arkansas, where his girlfriend Jan had said she was going for the night. He arrived at the club between 9 and 9.30 p.m. He did not see his girlfriend's car in the parking lot, so he decided to leave and go to Arkadelphia, which is about an hour from Lone Oak, around 10 p.m. Once he got to Arkadelphia, he drove around for a while, got some gas, and bought some skull. He decided to go to Whispering Oak Apartments, where he had previously lived and where his former roommate and ex-girlfriend still did. During Heath's initial interview, he's asked if he would submit to a polygraph test. And he says yes. After the polygraph is performed, Heath is told that he failed, and he confesses that he killed his father. When he's asked if he killed his mother or sister, he sobs uncontrollably, and he says that he loves them. At 7.05 p.m. on January 18th, with less than 24 hours having passed since the murders, Heath is interviewed by detectives at Arkansas State Police Headquarters in Little Rock. At this point, he's been awake for more than 36 hours. Heath is told that his confession was recorded and that it had been transcribed. He is told by his father's best friend, a Lone Oak police officer, to sign the confession that he did not write. Here are the details in that confession. Heath arrived at home after having dinner with his grandparents. The rest of his family were at a basketball game where his sister was cheerleading. Heath was thinking about his relationship with his dad and all of the trouble that they had been having. He was getting mad and worked up. He decides to get a pistol that his dad kept in a gun cabinet. He goes around the house messing up the place, throwing papers around and emptying out drawers. He takes a golf club and destroys the TV in his parents' bedroom. After messing up the house, he puts the gun in his mouth two different times, but he can't bring himself to pull the trigger. Heather came into the front door to see Heath standing in the living room with the gun. She sees the mess and thinks that they'd been robbed. She picks up the phone to call 911, and Heath tells her not to and he tells her to leave. Their parents come in the house through the carport door. Barbara says to call 911 as well after seeing how messed up the house is. Heath runs into the kitchen and sees his dad with the phone in his hand. Heath starts shooting and keeps shooting until all three family members are on the floor. 
Heath picks up all the shell casings that he can find, and then he kicks open the front door and then went and grabbed the jewelry from the safe in his parents' room and from the jewelry box in his sister's room. He left the house to drive to Arkadelphia, and on his way, he threw the gun into a small river as he was driving over a bridge. And he threw the jewelry into a dumpster behind the Pizza Hut. Investigators would later find these items where he said they would be. As an isolated incident, the events that took place on this night do not make any sense. It wouldn't be long before new details surfaced that would turn the town on its head and make many question Heath's life without parole sentence. It's important to understand the relationships that Heath had with his family. He was close with his mother, Barbara, and he was exceptionally close with his sister, Heather. And this is something that rang true in almost all of our interviews. Heather was Heath's protector and was loved by everyone in town. She was valedictorian, a cheerleader. She had a full-ride scholarship and had even been offered a modeling contract in Europe. She volunteered at the suicide hotline because she knew her brother was troubled and she thought that if she couldn't help him, then maybe she could help someone else. By all accounts, Heath's relationship with his father was not a good one. His father was abusive, and Heath always felt like he needed to prove himself to him. On the other hand, Heath had another father figure in his life who always seemed to be there for him. Jack Walls, his scout leader, gave him the love that he craved from his father. Heath joined the scouts at the age of nine and was taken under Jack's wing, who was 39 at the time. Jack was admired by the whole town and voted Chamber of Commerce Man of the Year one year. Jack's family, the Walls, helped found the town, and his father was a powerful and wealthy judge. Many other families in the town also relied on Jack and trusted him to help guide their young sons into manhood. On the night of the Stocks family murders, Jack arrived on the scene as a volunteer firefighter and was there during the investigation. He was trusted enough to be left alone after all of the police and investigators left to, quote, watch over the scene. When Heath was arrested, his first phone call was to Jack. And Jack told Heath that he would do everything he could to help him out of this situation. Heath was harboring a dark secret from his family about Jack. A secret that his mom had discovered and that he had recently come clean about to both Barbara and Heather. In a 1999 interview, a local woman gave her insights into how the town felt about Jack. She says, A lady I talked to after all this happened summed it up. She lives on the highway leading out to the Walls family farm, and every Saturday morning, she would look up. And Jack had an old Ford pickup. And she said there would be kids hanging all over that truck going out to the farm. And she would say to herself, what a guy. What a nice guy. In this episode, we've covered the official version of the Night of the Stocks murders. But we've only scratched the surface. And there's much more to come. Why was a nice American family that everyone loved murdered in cold blood? 
Did Heath act alone on the night of the murders? Why was Heath asked to sign a confession in under 48 hours after the murders and without a lawyer present? What was the secret that Heath revealed to his mom, Barbara, and his sister, Heather? Throughout the podcast, we'll be hearing from many experts and people close to the case. One of them is former chief of police, Charles F. Peckett. If you really look at this story, why in the world would Heath want to kill his parents? I can almost... I can understand, I, I'm not saying it's right, definitely is not right that he shot his dad. I can see that he shot his dad, but his mother and his sister, I, I just don't see that. I just can't see that he shot his mother and his sister. Um, I think that somebody else was there. We are going to be speaking with many people who were involved with the case at that time. We will hear their firsthand accounts of how the case unfolded and the unanswered questions they still have to this day. How deep do the corruption and cover-ups really run in Lone Oak, Arkansas? In addition to firsthand accounts, we will be sharing documents that have never been seen, including recent documents from the perpetrator himself. Join us for the second episode, where we will be diving into the remarkable events of Heath's childhood. What he was like growing up, his relationship with Heather, Barbara, and Joe, and how Jack Walls came into their life, setting in motion a path of destruction that would change everything. Life Without, the untold story of Heath Stocks is brought to you by Watts Productions and Block Party. Produced by Dylan Edward Allen, Colby Watts, and Katie Anthony. Archival materials provided by the Stocks family, the Harris family, Samantha Jones, and the Freedom of Information Act. Music by Colin Thomas. All information in this podcast is based on interviews from people close to the case never-before-seen insider documents, legal documents, FOIA documents, victim impact statements, and sworn affidavits. All parties mentioned in this podcast are innocent until proven guilty. For more information on this podcast and Heath Stocks, visit heathstockspodcast.com. For more information about the groundbreaking Scouts film, which features Heath Stocks, visit scoutsdocumentary.com.